morning, beautiful girl. Good morning. How's How, it going? Fantastic. How are you? I'm I'm here. Yeah, <laughs> you're a little tired. You had a late night last I did night. Have a late night. I'm tired. Yep. Driving around with your sister until one thirty in the morning. How would you know that? <laughs> because I have life three sixty on you. <laughs> she was like, "Wow." Oh. She's like, "Mom's gonna be mad." I was like, "Mom's gonna check our location and see that you were with me. You're fine." Like, if you were out just by yourself, yes, mom would be mad, but you're with me. I'm not going to let you get into any trouble. I don't even know what curfew is, because Coral is, like, she's so responsible. Like, for being 17, I swear to God, she is, like, she's so responsible. And to be honest, I didn't even check locations last night. I was like, nope, you know, she'll check in, which she did not, but... But she's so responsible. But she did not. She, she's so responsible. <laughs> she did. Well, probably because in her mind, she's like, well, mom's got 360 on me, so yeah. she knows where I'm at, whatever. But I don't, I don't typically, I don't really worry about, I don't, I just don't worry about her because she's so. Yeah. But it was funny. She was like, oh my gosh, it's all of a sudden 1 a.m. Yeah. And she was like mom is gonna be so mad i was like she if she's mad she's gonna look at our location and see all night since 10 o'clock you've been with me you're fine Uh, (laughs) she was like that's fair she usually doesn't care as long as i'm with you (laughs) yeah she came in though this morning and she was like so and so was supposed to be home at 11 30 and he didn't get home until 12 30 and now he's in trouble and i was like well yeah coral i mean i don't know whatever (laughs) it's crazy i'm tired yeah i'm a little too old to hang with 17-year-olds? Yeah, I'm a little Yeah, too, you are. I'm a little too old. Uh, <laughs> I hear that creepy old person now. Welcome Everyone to, thinks I'm cool. Welcome to the club, I've Samantha. never been cool. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Okay, well, um, I'm bringing the case today. Yay, Tracy episode. Yep, um, that's what time gives you. Yeah. I'm doing good with not lifting anything and being freaking worthless and not contributing whatsoever to the future of my family, so... <laughs> So I have lots of time (laughs) (laughs) to sit around and and write case notes. So so I'm I'm bringing the case. Yay. All right. I'm Tracy. I'm Samantha. This is the suspended sentence. Uh, Yeah, we can be found at. Okay, I was like, I didn't know if you were just going to go back. We are on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon, the suspended sentence podcast. Our email address is the suspended sentence podcast at gmail.com. You can buy Tracy's book anywhere the books are sold. Preferably Barnes & Noble. <laughs> IDP and the 13 Components to Criminal Thinking and Behavior. Perfect. Okay, here we go. Harold Fredmit Frederick Shipman. Does that name sound familiar? Mm-mm. This is a British case. Ooh, okay. Back to English roots here. Harold Frederick Shipman was born January 14th, 1946 in the city of Nottingham, England, according to Britannica. He was born into what is described in most profiles as a working class English family. His father was a truck driver and he was brought up on council estate. So this is in England, I guess, a form of public housing found throughout the United Kingdom. Okay. Okay. So Shipman's family was reportedly deeply religious. Um, they were Methodist. Um, which is like a Protestant Christian denomination that was popular in Britain. Um, the living in comparable humble circumstances, everything was looking up for Shipman as a child. He was very, very smart, and he was pretty, he was really athletic too. 
He was a success at, at, high, at his high pavement grammar school, which he attended after passing the 11th plus, which I don't, I don't really understand. I mean, I think it's like the 11th grade, right? Yeah, I would assume so. I would assume so, but I'm, I, I don't know that for sure because I don't know very much about English, the, what happens over there. Anyway, he was an accomplished rugby player and an athlete, and he was very, very close to his mother, Vera. Um, he was also, though, like a loner at school. Like, even though he was really smart and he was really athletic, he didn't really have tight friendships or close friends. Um, he passed his 11th plus in 1957, and he moved to High Pavement Grammar School in Nottingham, which he left in 1964. He excelled at a dis as a distance runner, and in his final years in school, he was vice captain of the athletics team. He was particularly close to his mother, Vera, again, and as a boy, Shipman reported, um, like, he was super, super devout to his mom. He was her favorite child, and she was apparently, like, pretty domineering, um, but she she instilled, like, this sense of superior, superior superiority in him. Like, she loved him. He was, he was her favorite, and he absolutely thought she hung the moon. Wow. But she died of lung cancer when she was 43 and he was 17. In the later stages of her disease, she had morphine admitted, administered to her at home, and he got to witness, like, when she would get her shots, her pain would subside despite her terminal condition. <clears throat> she died on June, 12, or June 21st, 1963. Numerous outlets, including Biography and St. Um, Mary's University, both claim that it was a direct consequence of his mother's death that Harold Shipman elected to, elected to go to medical school, which is pretty common um, when you have something traumatic happen that it piques an interest in you. Right. Um, though he was always an intellectual pupil, he, appar he apparently failed the first entrance exam and worked worked his way into studying like medicine at the nearby Leeds University some two years after his mother's death. Oh, wow. So pretty quickly after. Yeah. In his first year at medical school, he met and began to a romantic relationship with a lady named Primrose Oxby, who was a local farmer's daughter. She was described in The Guardian, which also reports that Oxby soon became pregnant within months of the couple meeting. In keeping the attitudes of the time, the pair married quickly, very yeah. quickly, as a result, and they did so November 5th, 1966. Shipman found himself a married man and a father-to-be while a freshman in college. Oh. The couple will have four children together. He studied medicine at Leeds School of Medicine, University of Leeds, and he graduated in 1970. Shipman began working at Point Factorial Point Fract General Infamy in Ponefract, West Riding of Northshire. Wow. <laughs> and in 1947, he took his first position as a general practitioner at the Abraham Ormod, Ormod, oh my gosh, Orimod, what is that word? Ormirod? Ormirod Medical Center in, say the name of that town. Todd Morden. Todd <laughs> <laughs> the following year, Shipman was caught forging subs um, prescriptions, though, of pethidine for his own use. What so is pethidine? It's Demerol. It's a pain pill. I was like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, either. but it wasn't, a, he didn't get it in pill form. He got it in liquid form, so he'd have to inject himself. Oh, cool. And he was, though, it was, it's reported that he took so much of it that it would, like, debilitize him. 
like his wife, Primrose, would have to drive him to visit his patients. So he was fucked up. Jesus. He was like really, really off it. But anyway, so he gets caught forging these prescriptions to himself, but he was only fined 600 pounds and had to attend rehab just briefly. Mm. He got to keep his medical license and he went right back to work. So he worked as a general practitioner at Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, which is the greater Manchester um, area in 1977. He continued working as a general practitioner in Heed throughout the 1980s and established his own surgery center at 21 Market Street in 1993, becoming a very, very respected member of the community. In 1983, he was interviewed in an edition of Granada Television Current Affairs document um, where he, he talked about basically like how the mentally ill should be treated in the community. He was a very, very well-respected man. Okay. In March of 1988, though, Dr. Linda Reynolds of the Brooks Surgery in Heed started to get a little worried about something that she just couldn't shake. She expressed concerns to Paul, to John Pollard, the coroner of the South Manchester District, about the high death rate among Shipman's patients. In particular, she was concerned about the large number of cremation forms that elderly women that he had her countersign. Police were unable to find sufficient evidence to bring any charges against him, and they closed the case pretty quickly. But a few months later, in August, a taxi driver by the name of John Shaw, he contacted police and was like, yeah, I, I don't know really what's going on here, but like, I think he's murdering his patients. There have been 21 patients that he calls me to come and get. He takes them to the hospital. They seem to be in good health, and then they die just randomly die and there was 21 of them in a pretty short period of time and so he goes to police and he's like maybe we could look into this but then nothing comes of that they were just like he's a doctor man and he's like you know well respected in this community like check yourself like obviously something you know 21 people though in a short amount of time is a lot of like that's that's a lot that's a good like arraignment of a bad luck there good run of bad luck or something right But then finally, a a lady by the name of Kathleen Grundy, who was the former mayor of of that town, was found dead in her home on June 4th, 1998. Shipman was the last person to see her alive. He later signed her death certificate regarding the the cause of death as old age. But her granddaughter, who is a solicitor by the name of Angela Woodruff, was like, "Mm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Then she gets made aware that her mother changed her will at the last minute. Oh, okay. Right. So the new will had been made and left 386,000 pounds to shipman. Because that's not a red flag. Why would you leave that much money (laughs) to your doctor? You want it. When you've got kids and a family and yeah, you, want it. you wouldn't do that. So Burgess urging, she went to the police. Burgess is another, was another solicitor and he is the one who made her aware of the change in the will. So at his, his urging, she went to the police and they began an investigation. Grundy's body was exhumed and found to contain um, traces of dorf, uh, diamorphine, which is heroin. Um, which is often used for pain control and terminal cancer patients. 
she didn't have cancer. Shipman claims that Grundy had been an addict and showed them comments where he had written to that effect in his medical journal. However, when police went back, and I mean, this is 1998, they can trace when notes are written. You know, I mean, I'm in the medical field, or, you know, so when you write notes, case notes into your computer, it documents what date you write it. Like it's, it's a, a like, even way back then. Yeah. When something is created, there's there, it leaves a mark in the computer system. Like you can put whatever date you want for the service, but when that note was created, when that entry is made into the computer system, there is an electronic blueprint of that that's huh. left. <clears throat> and so when police pull his computer and forensically anal- analyze it, it shows that the entries were actually written after her death. Oh, trying so, to cover something up. Right, Exactly. So he was arrested on September 7th, 1998, and was found um, to own a brother typewriter of the type that was used to make the forged will. He forged her will. She didn't do it. Oh, man. Okay. Right. So in there's a book that was written in 2000, um, in the year 2000, that's called Prescription for Murder, um, that Brian Whistle and Jean Ritchie wrote. And in there, they suggest that Shipman forged the will either because he wanted to be caught or because his life was out of control, or because he planned to retire at 55 and leave the UK. But they don't know. The police investigated other deaths that Shipman had certified and investigated 15 specific cases. They discovered a pattern of him administrating, administering lethal doses of dorfamorphine, diamorphine, again heroin, signing the patient's death certificates, and then falsifying medical records to indicate that they had been in poor health. So... He gets arrested. He gets charged with this. His trial begins at Preston Crown Court on October 5th, 1998. He was charged with the murders of 15 women by lethal injections of, of heroin, all between 1995 and 1998. Jesus. Right. During the trial, <clears throat> one of the most perplexing parts, though, was <clears throat> the closeness of Shipman and his wife. Even as Shipman's guilt was being proven right in front of everyone, she attended every day of his trial and made weekly visits to Wakefield Prison to see him. Some reports suggest that the couple would, like, when she would go to visit him in prison, they would hold hands, kiss, and appear to have, like, no care in the world. Just be, like, blissfully in love. Okay. Right. Reports from the Independent claim that... She, when they were at trial, you know, so they would have lunch, they would break for lunch and then lunch would be served there. And like the family members of the victims and I mean, everybody that's there would go, you know, like stand in line, like cafeteria style lunches or whatever. And she would try to make small talk with, with the family members of the victims of, of the victims of who her husband killed. Okay. What the fuck? She would try to talk to them. And there's also like, they say that. She brought round chocolates to court and tried to give them to the victim's family. I'm sorry. I'm not taking nothing from you, lady. No. Like, how disrespectful. Like, that's wild. Yeah, that's that, wild. Yeah, I absolutely. would not be taking anything from her. No. Absolutely not. No. On January 31st, 2020, though, after 34 hours of deliberation, the jury found Shipman guilty on all 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. Mr. Justice Forbes subsequently sentenced him to life imprisonment on all 15 counts with a recommendation that he be subject, he be subject to whole life tariff, 
which is like life in prison. Okay. Um, on February 11th, 11 days after his conviction, he was struck off the medical registry by the General Medical Council. So he lost his license. Oh, well, I'm shocked it took him that long to lose his license. Right. Well, he had to be found guilty, right? Innocent until proven guilty. I don't know if that's a thing in England. I'm just saying it. Um, <laughs> Shipman denied his guilt, disputing scientific evidence, even though, like, scientific evidence, like, no, you did it, bro. Like, but yeah. he was like, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. He never made any public statements about his actions, and his wife, Primrose, maintained that he was not guilty even after his conviction. Dang. Standing by her man. Standing by her man. A government inquiry was ordered, though, to terminate to determine how many more patients he may have murdered. And in 2005, an official report found that he had killed an estimated 250 people beginning in 1971. What? Right. In most cases, he injected the victims with a lethal dose of painkiller, the door morphine, and then signed a death certificate attributing the incident to natural causes. <laughs> his motives were unclear, though some speculated that he may have been seeking to avenge the death of his mother. While others suggested avenge the death of his, his mother. Mom died of cancer. She died of lung cancer. Like there was no avenging anything. It's not like she was like murdered walking down the street. Right. Or a doctor did malpractice or it's something. So right. What the hell? But others suggest that he thought that he was practicing practicing um um Euthanasia. Yeah. Yeah. Removing the population of the older people who otherwise may become a burden to the healthcare system. So, i.e., he thinks he's God. A third possibility raised that he was deprived pleasure from the knowledge that, as a doctor, he has the power over life and death. I think it's probably that. Right. And the killing just means, like, that's just the means in the, that he expressed his power and control, right? So, despite his forgery of the will of one of his victims, financial gain does not appear to have been a serious motive. I mean, the dude had money. He didn't need money. No, he's a doctor. Plus... Like, half of these people, like, he wasn't in the will of. That's only one instance of this. Right. Like. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, and there's a lot of victims, potentially. But one key question that, like, kept plaguing investigators is how the hell he got away with this. Like, how such a large number of deaths could have occurred without raising suspicion of foul play, obviously. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't know how big this town is, but. But. At any rate, you it's know, a lot of people. Absolutely, this was all the more baffling because Shipman's patients were normally healthy shortly before their encounters with him, and the fact that he took advantage of some of the patients' trust as in him, like the the public was absolutely outraged. Obviously, like you go to your doctor to get help, you trust your doctor, right? And all these people are going to see him. They're healthy. They're fine, and then they're dead. Yeah. And it, it really is, like, nobody complained. Nobody was like, dude, my my mom went in there healthy, and you're saying she died of natural causes? What? Yeah. But he had an explanation, and he could explain it away, and nobody, nobody fucking questioned or him. Or if you're, like, you go in, and you're like, my mom was fine, and he's like, oh, she was actually a drug addict. Be like, what? Yeah, I <laughs> huh? would have noticed that. I think I would have known if my mom was a heroin user. Right. Right. So he gets found guilty. All of that happens, and then, like the coward that he is, he committed suicide in his cell on January 13th, 2004. He was 57. 
on the and this was the eve of his 58th birthday. Hmm. He was pronounced dead at 10 at 8:10 a.m. A statement from His Majesty's Prison Service, sorry, Majesty's Prison Service. I don't know why I've got a lisp today. <laughs> um, indicated that he had hanged himself from the window um, bars of his cell and used his bed sheets to do so. After his death, his body was taken to the mortuary at Ladigo uh, Legal Center um, and undertaken for like a postmortem exam. The West Yorkshire Corner, David. Why are words so hard? Right there. What is that? Say that name. Hinchcliffe? I don't know. Eventually released <laughs> the body to his family after an inquest was opened and adjourned, adjourned shortly after. Like they were like, oh, how did he die? Did he really hang himself? What? Hmm, okay. <laughs> Some of the victim's families felt like, said that they felt cheated, obviously, right? As his suicide meant that he would never... They, he would never confess. He would never have to pay for his crimes, basically. He would yeah. never have a punishment. He would never give any answers. They wouldn't be able to, you know, like, ask him about any of the other people. Like, Right. A like lot they, of people with no, no, like, closure at all. Right. Right. I mean, they got the conviction, but but it didn't really mean anything because he he's not going to have to do it. Right? right. So the family felt really cheated after that. Um. Home Secretary David Blunkett admitted that a celebration was very tempting. He is quoted as saying, you wake up and you receive a call telling you that Shipman has topped himself. And you think, is it too early to open a bottle? And then you discover that everyone's very upset and that he's done it. That's a quote from him. I didn't say that. Shipman's death divided national newspapers with a daily mirror branding him as a cold coward. Well, I just called him a coward. And condemning the prison service for allowing the suicide to happen. However, the Sun ran a celebratory front page headliner that said, Ship, ship, hooray. Ooh. Oop. The Independent called for an inquiry into the shipment suicide and to look more widely at the state of the UK prisons as well as welfare of inmates. The Guardian, an article by General Sir David Ramsbotham, who had formerly served as um, as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Prisons, suggested that the whole life sentencing be replaced by infinite infinite sentencing, and this would at least give prisoners the hope of eventual re- hopeful release and reduce the risk of ending their own lives by suicide. I'm sorry, but in prison, you have very little things that you can kill yourself with. Right. If somebody wants to, they're going to get absolutely. It done. I'm sorry, are we going to just not let them have blankets? Because then that's cruel and inhumane. Right. If somebody wants to, they're going to. So I think yeah. that whole, like, you need to watch them better. Right. But but there, the public so was, so, was so upset about it. Like, everybody was super divided. Some people were joyous. Some people were <clears throat> not. Some people attacked the prison system. I mean, the, the country was completely divided over this. Huh. I mean, everybody was upset. I mean, from the very beginning, like, how did this happen? How did he get away with it? Why wasn't yeah. there inquest before this? And then now he's just dead, you yeah. know, right after he's, you know, whatever. Did he fake his death? Uh-huh. Well, you're just going to have to see. <laughs> Shipman's motive for suicide was never established, although he reportedly told his probation officer that he was considering suicide to assure that his wife's financial security after he was stripped from his National Health Service pension. So his wife received a full pension 
but she would not be entitled to it if he had lived past the age of 60. Oh. So, and he was 58 when he offed himself. I mean. So, additionally, there was evidence that his wife, Primrose, who had consistently, like, defended him, was beginning to um, to suspect that he maybe really did do it. So he refused to take part in the courses that would have encouraged acknowledgement of his crimes that were um, that were provided in prison, um, which led to a temporary removal of his privileges, including the opportunity to telephone his wife. During this period, though, according to Shipman's cellmate, he received a letter from Primrose exhorting him to, quote, tell me everything, no matter what, tell me everything. So she was starting... She was starting to question him. Yeah, she was like, okay, maybe, I mean, my husband is serving life in prison. Maybe I should, like, think about that a little bit. Right, right. But an inquiry was made, nevertheless, to to his suicide and to see if, like, who was at fault and if the prison, like, screwed up. Um, and the result was, quote, this could not have been predicted or prevented. And so, I mean, nonetheless, it was reexamined, but... You know, nobody was found Maybe at they fault. They looked into it. Right. After Shipman's body was finally released to his family, it remained at the Shetfield for more than a year, despite false reports about his funeral. His widow was advised by police against burying him because of grave attackers. There was so much public outcry that they that they literally thought if they release the body and they go and bury him, people are going to go dig it up. They're going to... And people were pissed. That's wild. Right. So they held his body for a year. And finally she had him cremated. Um, It took place outside normal working hours to maintain secrecy. And it was attended only by his wife and their four children. Like nobody knew about it. Dang. For the safety of the family and the safety of the body and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. In January of 2001, Chris Gregg, a senior West Warshire Police Depart- detective, was selected to lead an investigation into 22 of the Yorks of the West Yorkshire deaths. Okay, so following this, this will be called the Shipman Inquiry. Ooh, okay. It was submitted in July of 2002, and it concluded that he had killed at least 218 of his patients between 1975 and 1998. Holy crap. Yep. Dame Janet Smith, the judge who submitted the report, admitted that many more deaths of a suspicious nature could not be definitively described or ascribed to Shipman. They just couldn't be, they couldn't be proven because too much time had lapsed. But most of his victims were elderly women, all in good health. That's so sad. In her sixth and final report issued on January 24th, 2005, Smith reported that she believed that Shipman had killed three patients and that she had serious suspicion about a fourth death, including that of a four-year-old girl during the early stages of his medical career. In total, 459 people died while under his care between 1971 and 1998. Over 400. 459 people but it is uncertain how many of those were actual murder victims and not, you know, like, like true actual, deaths. Yeah. Right. 
Um, Smith's estimate of Shipman's total victim count over that 27 period, 27 year period of time, she thinks he killed 250 of them. The GMC charged six doctors who count who signed cremation forms for Shipman's victims with misconduct, claiming that they should have noticed the pattern between Shipman's home visits and his patients' deaths, but all of these doctors were found not guilty. In October 2005, a similar hearing was held against two doctors who worked at Tameside General Hospital in 1994, who failed to detect that Shipman had deliberately administered a grossly excessive dose of morphine. The Shipman inquiry recommended changes to the structure of the GMC, which did go through. Yeah. In 2005, it came to light that Shipman may have stolen jewelry also from his victims. In 1998, police had seized over 10,000 pounds worth of jewelry that they found in his garage. Jesus. In March of 2005, when Primrose asked for its return, like she wants the jewelry back, what the hell? Police wrote to the families of Shipman's victims, asking them if they could identify any of the jewelry. The investigation um, ended in August. Authorities returned 66 pieces to his wife. What the fuck? And auctioned off 33 pieces that she confirmed were not hers. Proceeds of the auction went to victim support. The only piece of returned a piece of jewelry that was returned to a murder victim's family was a platinum diamond ring for which the family could provide a photograph that proved ownership. Oh, man. Right. That's a wild, like, story. Right. Right. 250 people. But potentially over 400. Yeah. Right. 459 deaths in, tw- in 27 years of being a doctor... So he is known as the doctor of death. Yeah. Right. Fitting. Right. Isn't that crazy? Could you imagine? And then with all of my medical stuff going on, I'm like, why were they pushing fentanyl so bad? <laughs> were you the new doctor of death? Were you trying to kill me? <laughs> That's wild. That's a wild story. Right. Well-respected, liked man in the community. Got away with it for 30 years. And people questioned him. I mean, people people were like the taxi driver, the, I mean, and he was just disregarded. Like, no, he's a, he's an upstanding member of our, of our community. How dare you? And he's just, and maybe that's why doctors don't do house visits anymore. Maybe that's why. Can't be supervised. Right. Yeah. Everything. And. And he was so fucked up taking the own, his own drugs, like, with his own addiction, yeah. that his wife had to drive him. So if he's so messed up on pain pills, I mean, he didn't take it in pill form. He injected it. But if he's that messed up... That person has no business administrating drugs to begin with. That he can't even drive to see a patient, then he can't see... Then he should not be seeing a patient. And I don't know why she wasn't charged with that. I mean, isn't that like assisting in a betting or whatever? I, I mean, in America. Yeah. I don't know in England. In but. England, what that's like, but. And then what that does to the whole trust of doctors in that whole area. Yeah. Or any hospital that he was affiliated with, or. I mean, he wasn't the boss, was he? Or was it his own practice? 
that one, and he opened his own one. But before that? Before that, no. That's crazy. I mean, the first 10 years of his medical career, he was... But you would think, you would think that even if you have your own practice and again, I don't know what it's like over in England because you know, it's, it could be different, but you know, like there's, you're watched, right? You're monitored. You'd think, I mean, it's the seventies, but it was, it was, I mean, but into the nineties. Yeah. I don't know. Creepy. That's a really creepy story. So. I, um, when I was going through my, my whole hemorrhaging ulcer bullshit stuff or whatever, do you remember when my doctor wrote me a wrong prescription? Yes. So I, and thank God that I'm like this, like I research the shit out of everything and I don't put, I don't take drugs that I don't know what all of the side effects are, what they do, what they're like, whatever. And so I go and I fill my prescriptions and I don't like taking pills anyway, um, so I get this one and they all start with a P they all, you know, are 50, 50 characters long in this one right. word. Right. And I go and I fill my prescriptions and I come home, but the pill looked different before I took it. And so I Googled it. It was a heart medication. Yeah. And you were, I remember you were like, is he not telling me something? Like, is something wrong what? with my heart? What the hell is it's, happening? Yeah. And then you call your doctor and you're like, is there something you're not telling me? Because why would you prescribe a new medication? Right. For my heart. Like, I don't have heart disease. Do I? And he was like, oh, shit, shit, shit. Take that back. And I was like, what? What? How did this this happen? Yeah. How do you write the wrong prescription? How do you do that? So, I, I mean, I don't know. That could be so dangerous. Oh, for sure. I mean, if somebody has like, I don't know, something for like high blood pressure and you're giving them something that would like raise their blood pressure for their thyroid or something, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it just kind of makes me wonder though, like how often this really does happen. I'm sure that malpractice happens way more than we would like to think that it happens. I think I agree with that. And I also think that it probably happens more times than we even know. Yeah. I mean, like, I didn't do anything about that. I just went and took the prescription back and got the right one. Right. But it's like, you know, I mean, what are you supposed... Should you report that? Probably. I mean, if we were in, like, a... That's why, you know, like you were saying the other day, it's practicing medicine. And it's so hard that... I mean, because it's practicing medicine, a lot of things, they'll get, like, a warning. And nothing happens for... Yeah. I mean, I worked at a chiropractic clinic for years, and we had a chiropractor who, fresh out of school, put hand placement was wrong and broke somebody's ribs. Oh, no. Nothing came from that. Yeah. I mean, it's practicing. See, I don't... And and we put so much trust in them, right? Like... Mm -hmm. You know, I even think back to like just what we just went through or whatever. It was like, you know, the doctors here said, you got to go to Billings and you got to do this and you got to, you know, and I don't, I didn't see the test results. I didn't, you know, you go in just blindly trusting them. Right. You know, and I mean, even, even, you know, like trying to get the, the IV in my arm or whatever and how many times they did. I mean, we just trust them. Right. Because we, you know, think that they know what they're doing. 
Right. But even if you do report things like that, I mean, because it's practicing, it's literally, like, I think you get, like, certain amount of warnings and then it's a fine and then after a certain amount of fines then you lose a medical license but it's not like well they have insurance for it right right i but okay so and i'm not trying to be whatever but let's just say i didn't research that pill and i took two of them and i died right nobody would even have known they would just be like she just she just died she just died can't explain it natural causes so wild it's so wild it's so wild this guy was doing it obviously like purposely but i mean the amount of people that weren't like um no man like my mom was healthy she was healthy and fine but then i don't know maybe people are i don't know it's wild it blows my mind and it scares the shit out of me how did they wild i mean i don't ever go to the doctor i <laughs> Well, and maybe maybe this is why. <laughs> I mean, unless I'm like literally dying, I don't go to the doctor. Right. I, I get just, that from you. I'm stubborn. Yeah. And most of the time though, like our bodies are made to heal themselves. I mean, unless it's something major, I don't know. I don't know, but this is wild and it doesn't help my it doesn't help my Yeah, good thing you didn't research this before you went to the doctor or you'd be like probably dead because your pancreas would have eaten itself by now i know <laughs> i know i've been like nope they're gonna kill me nope they're gonna give me too much fentanyl and i'm gonna die and i'm gonna die which they could i can't believe they were gonna like prescribe stuff like that to you that's crazy to me i know it's crazy to me <laughs> when we're in like this huge fentanyl crisis. crisis in america right let me write you a prescription for some fentanyl how much would you like and then so on top, what, I could accidentally take an extra pill when I'm already high on my pain meds and die in my bed. Like, that's cool. It makes sense. Right. What the fuck? And then let's give you some um, Valium on top of that. Because isn't that what they wanted to give mm-hmm. me for my MRI? Mm-hmm. Jesus. Anyway. <laughs> so. Well, good job. I had never heard of him, but that's really? wild. I always, when I think of Dr. Death, when I hear that, I think of that, that doctor, the suicide doctor. Yeah, from, me too. From Oregon. I didn't even. England coming in with all the wild stories. Man. I know. England's got some, they got some they, cases over they there. They do man. got some cases over there. We've covered some wild stuff from over there. I know. Well, we are, England following is increasing. And so I thought, oh, let's, let's do one for England. And this is the <laughs> one that I pick. So. Hey guys. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Um, note from the very beginning when you said Nottingham, you know what I think of when I think of Nottingham? Yeah. Robin Hood. <laughs> oh my Robin gosh. Hood and little John running through the forest. Okay. So we've saying in the last like 12 episodes i know <laughs> everybody hates us I know. <laughs> well great job on that one Thanks. i'm glad that you think robin hood too i do yeah fantastic movie and then my mind goes to brian adams because brian adams did the soundtrack for the movie robin hood oh he did yeah, and I loved Brian Adams. I loved Brian Adams growing up. He was my favorite singer ever. <laughs> and then I saw him in concert, and then I hated him. Mm. Why? Sorry, I took a drink of my peppermint mocha. You did, you've never heard this story? No. Oh, I was obsessed with Brian Adams, completely obsessed. I grew up in Casper, Wyoming, and um, 
so I think I was 16 years old. I was a sophomore in high school and he performed in Casper. He came to Casper and I went to the concert. It was my first concert. I was so excited. I mean, like we paid for front row seats. Dang. I mean, back then it wasn't as absorbent as it is now. But anyway, so Brian Adams, I love completely obsessed with this dude. And I was so excited, got front row seats, but it was on a school night. And I don't know why he performed a concert in Casper, Wyoming on a school night. But so he performs. And I mean, like, as soon as he comes out, it wasn't sold out, obviously. Like his, well, no, I mean, it would have been if it was on a weekend, but I mean, concerts go until whatever. And (laughs) yeah. And so he comes out and I mean, completely dissed on Casper. And he was like, I don't even know why I'm out here for the 14 people that are here. And there weren't 14. There were thousands of people there. But he was just a complete asshole. Really? Yeah, he was an asshole. And I did get a, a guitar pick from one of the guitar players, like reached down and handed it to me, which was, I mean, it was cool. But he just had a piss poor attitude and he was insulting my town. And it was like, okay, well, but, but we're here. Yeah, so... Like, so, you know, we paid for a ticket. Yeah, that's... Um, we went to Cheyenne Frontier Days, which in Cheyenne, Wyoming, it's... It's the, a big deal. The granddaddy of them all, guys. It is. It's a rodeo it's that... It's a big deal. National rodeo that's in, in Casey... Or not Casey. You said Cheyenne. You said Casper, and I was like, Casey, which is like... Yeah. First Ladue. Um, in Cheyenne, and they have, it's like rodeo during the day, massive concerts at night, and we get like some big names for that. Yeah. And so last year, my husband and I were like, we're going to go down, because neither of us had ever been to Cheyenne Frontier Days. Grew up in Wyoming my entire life, and never been to Cheyenne No, we don't do that. Yeah. So we went to two, three nights? Mm -hmm. We went to a couple nights. And I was so excited to see Cole Wetzel. So excited. And by the time it was like Nelly and Jelly Roll before him, which are, I mean, Nelly should have opened her by yeah. himself. Right. And Cole Wetzel was a headliner. And by the time he got out, he was plastered drunk. Yep. Like, had a bottle of whiskey in his hand, got up there, didn't know the lyrics to his songs, like, couldn't hear what he was saying, was mumbling. And then people started booing him. Yeah. And he would, came over and was like, I thought this was Wyoming. I thought you guys were supposed to be a bunch of cowboy-ass motherfuckers. And everybody just left. Everybody was like, literally, go fuck yourself, yeah, dude. Yeah, you, <laughs> like, can't, you can't do that in Wyoming. Like, and he was like, I thought you guys liked to party. And they were like, we do. We but do. we keep our shit under control. <laughs> but, we're not throwing up on stage. Right, but we don't drink to the point that we can't function. <laughs> we're here for a good time, man. But like... So then everybody right. was like, Nelly, Nelly, come back out. Get this guy off the stage. Yeah. And I was so excited to see him, and I was so disappointed. Yeah. And it was not cheap to go. No. No, you should have gotten your tickets back, or your, Literally. your money back. Because everybody left. Yeah. I mean, I think we stayed longer than most. We were like, maybe they'll, he'll pull it together. He was slamming whiskey on stage the entire time. Yeah. And that's the thing about Wyoming, and it's, I mean, it's why a lot of stars like to come here. Like, I mean, Chris Ledoux or, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, Mm. famous people who come here because we don't give a shit who you are. No. You pull your weight here. You do your thing. You be respectful. You stay humble or 
you're not going to vibe here. Yeah, Cheyenne, or not Cheyenne, Casey, that's what I was trying to go back to. Casey, Wyoming's, like, what, population, like, four, five people? Yeah, not very many. And they have Chris Ledoux days every year, and sometimes yep. they get big names yeah. for that. Because, I mean, wasn't it, like, George Strait came one year for that? Yeah, and Garth Brooks has come, and, I mean, big name people come. But, but you better be respectful when you walk into Casey, Wyoming. Get your ass beat. <laughs> you're gonna get your ass beat if you're not. Mm-hmm. And, and if you've never had your ass kicked by somebody from Wyoming, you've never had your ass kicked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Garth Brooks. That's who it was. It wasn't George Strait. George Strait went to Frontier Days. Oh, th- but, they've probably all been here. But Garth I Brooks mean, came and did. Chris Ledoux Days is a big deal to the country, and that's literally Western. like a stage in the middle of their little downtown. Yeah. I mean, it's... But there's, like, a city park that's that's to him. But, I mean, really, like, you've got you to gotta be respectful. I don't know how we got off on this tangent, but but here we are. Brian <laughs> something, your singer. Brian something. What's his name? I don't know who you're Are you serious? About. You don't know who Brian Adams is? I don't know who is? that is, no. Yes, you do. Well, what does he sing? He sings a ton of songs. What? And as soon as we get off here, you're going to go on a Brian Adams oh, throwback. Oh, man. Pray for me. <laughs> you know who Brian Adams is. He was like huge who? in the eighties. Name a song. He's um everything I do, I do it for you. Oh, okay, I do know who Brian Adams. Uh, there's a million songs. I was his summer of sixty nine. Oh, that's who sings that. Okay, Are you serious gotcha. right now? Every time that song comes on, I'm like, blare it, sing it. I know that song. I just forgot his name. I'm not good with names. Yeah, I was his biggest fan, and I after that, like I. Did not listen to his music. Like, fan, done. Okay. Because he insulted. He insulted my hometown. And he was an asshole. So, things we're scared of. Killing, killer doctors and yeah. things we hate. Asshole musicians. Okay. Yeah. That's all. Thank you for coming to our uh, uh, <laughs> <today>. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks, guys. Stay safe.